Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I'm speaking with Erin Panetta about decolonizing praxis. Erin, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, absolutely. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I am a professor at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm a political theorist, and my work focuses mainly on the politics of protest, civil disobedience and dissent, social movements, and Black political thought. And my first and only book (laughs) came out in 2021, and it is entitled Seeing Like an Activist, Civil Disobedience and the Civil Rights Movement. So what the heck is decolonizing praxis? Excellent question. Um, So this is a term that I devised through my book, which, as the title suggests, focuses on civil disobedience in the civil rights movement. And the book is kind of written as a critique of the prevailing analyses and theories of civil disobedience that we get in Anglo-American political and legal philosophy through the 20th century, which have been enormously influential. And as I try to show in the book, have really shaped the kind of broader public vocabulary beyond the academy that people use to understand, name, and judge civil disobedience. This is very entangled with ideas about the civil rights movement, about a kind of public memory of the civil rights movement. And that public memory and that kind of political discourse really locks the movement within a domestic context. It's framed by U.S. constitutional norms, by a kind of U.S. political language of reform, And the logic that informs public discourse goes something like this. The movement was well-behaved, decorous, and civil. And through that kind of well-mannered, very principled and respectful mode of dissent, it stirred white, in particular, conscience in the U.S. in order to propel a series of legal reforms that together dismantled Jim Crow. And so the way that this logic in this story becomes important is that whenever in the U.S. or or even globally we see new waves of civil disobedience and direct action, that becomes the kind of standard against which all new movements are judged. And it's an impossible standard because it didn't really happen that way. Okay. (laughs) So one of the moves that I make, one of the main moves that I make in the book um, is sort of twofold. One is to place the movement back within a global context of decolonizing movements. So part of the argument that I make there is that the way that civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action more broadly became available to Black civil rights activists as a plausible tool for dismantling Jim Crow was with these complicated and decades-long engagements with anti-colonial movements, not just in India, but also across Pan-African movements that were taking up what we might think of as a broadly Gandhian mode of dissent. And so it became plausible to them, seeing this, engaging with these activists, this way of collectively mobilizing became plausible because Jim Crow shared so many features with racial colonial rule elsewhere. 
And so the way that activists in the U.S. really thought about what they were doing with civil disobedience and how it operated was really informed and enriched by this understanding of what civil disobedience did as an anti-colonial, as a decolonial tool. Cool. So that's the decolonizing part. The praxis part attends to something linked that I try to do in the book, which is to think about activist argument and activist practice as a mode of theorizing. So this is the way that I position my account of civil disobedience, which is informed by archival and historical work, against what it is that mid-century political philosophers were really doing, the, the kinds of frames and epistemologies that they were mobilizing in order to think about civil disobedience. Really asking, okay, what is it that activists do when they try to name and diagnose the forms of power to which they're subject and formulate ways of acting together that they think might actually transform them. You know, it's akin to what the queer theorist Jack Halberstam calls low theory, borrowing from Stuart Hall, a kind of mode of theoretical praxis that emerges out of these subterranean countercultural spaces and stands often in opposition to what we get in sort of mainstream political discourse and also in high theory. Uh, which is the name of this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's okay. We also like low theory. <laughs> well, I'm also a theorist, so I'm doing high theory talking about low theory, I guess. Right. Right. Maybe tell us a little bit more about the high theory of that period. Like, what is this political philosophy? And like, what are you seeing that's distinct when you look at the historical praxis? Yes. Yeah, so this is an important question. So there is this huge enterprise of theorizing civil disobedience that comes out of the 1960s and 70s in the Anglo-American Academy. A lot of it is centered in philosophy departments, but there's also a lot going on in law during those years. And it's really prompted by social movements, by things that are happening in the streets, by the sit-in movement, by the anti-nuclear and anti-war movements. Mainstream liberal and democratic philosophers start to think and write about civil disobedience as a part of their bigger theories of what's known as political obligation. This is basically the question, why must we morally or politically obey the law? Or must we obey? What kinds of moral or political obligations do we have as citizens to comply with a set of rules that are often not of our own making? Most famously, John Rawls in A Theory of Justice, but also figures that are maybe a little bit less known, like Hugo Beto and Carl Cohen. There's a kind of core set of political philosophers who are doing this work in these years. They're by and large liberals. They are very sympathetic to the civil rights movement and to a little bit later, the anti-war, anti-Vietnam movement. And so they're interested in defending movements like the civil rights movement from a set of conservatives who at the time are saying that any kind of lawbreaking is criminal and therefore civil disobedience, which conventionally we think of as purposeful lawbreaking in order to make a political point as an act of protest, that any kind of lawbreaking, even in that kind of conscientious organized mode, is going to degrade the rule of law is going to lead to chaos and anarchy and therefore can't be tolerated. And that in a liberal democratic state, the presumption is that you have other mechanisms at your disposal, legal mechanisms through which to make a point. 
And so Rawls and others want to defend the movement from that kind of criticism. But the way that they go about thinking about civil disobedience is to kind of bring it fully into the fold of the rule of law and constitutional order. And so they put a lot of strictures around what civil disobedience has to look like in order to be justifiable or tolerable, to make a convincing case that, in fact, civil disobedience isn't destabilizing to the rule of law, doesn't fundamentally try to transform the legal or constitutional order, and therefore isn't a threat. It's a way of making it a tool that stabilizes order rather than undermines it. In the book, the way that I talk about this is it's a way of seeing civil disobedience from the vantage point of the state. It takes as primary the idea that if civil disobedience is to be tolerable, it has to be a tool for stability. It cannot be transformative in the way that I think activists want it to be and need it to be. And so that becomes a problem insofar as it is entangled with the other gigantic assumption they make, which has very much to do with their own racial positioning within the U.S. When they look at the civil rights movement and they not only say that what the movement is doing is justifiable, but also that it fits within their theory, they assume that the Jim Crow order is a legitimate liberal democratic order. And so they, in a way, deracialize Jim Crow, but also make a whole set of racialized assumptions about activism, about activist practice, and about what civil disobedience must look like in order to be tolerable. So that's the kind of vantage point that I'm trying to unpack, show how it historically emerged, trace out a little bit how it reappears continuously today. It's still very much a part of our public discourse and try to see from a different perspective. Cool. Let me ask you our second question, which is, how do I use decolonizing praxis? The book, in a way, is very historical. So it has in the book multiple components, or I sort of theorize it as operating on multiple levels. So the first level that we can think of as part of a kind of grassroots politics of decolonization is that activists, Black activists of the civil rights movement, like their anti-colonial counterparts, thought about civil disobedience as a mode of self-emancipation. It was, first of all, a way of engaging directly with a system of racial domination that didn't function along the lines of petition, didn't make a request for reform, but instead directly intervened in a system of domination in order to change it and in order to stand their ground. So the example that I unpack in the book is about going to jail for protests. So the kind of common sense is that when you do civil disobedience, you accept legal punishment in order to signal your sincerity and in order to signal that you are trying to stabilize a constitutional order rather than break one. But civil rights activists tended to talk about going to jail as a way of standing their ground in what was kind of ground zero for racial terror, which is the Southern jail. So they went to jail in order to deny the state bail money, bail money, which then went to fund further their racial immiseration, forms of domination, both legal and extra legal. And they went to show that it could not be used as a space of fear to hold them in place. And so they tended to talk about this as a kind of liberatory practice, that the reason that you accepted jail, even though it was among the most frightening things that a Black person in the South could do, was to show that you could not be held in place, you could not be confined within these terms of domination any longer, and that that wasn't up to anybody else to say where you went and when. The idea is that you're not scared of the most scary thing. Yes, precisely. And so therefore that it can't be used any longer as a kind of threat, you better stay in your place or this will happen to you. You'll be subjected to these forms of violence, of confinement, 
that had been used very effectively as a disciplining tool. And this was a way for activists to turn that on its head. Okay. It's familiar from the Gandhian movement as well, this idea of filling up the jails in order to overwhelm state capacity to hold people in jail, in order to perform a kind of fearlessness. This is something that Gandhi talked and theorized a lot about. Um, Satyagraha, his term for what we might think of as civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action as a way of conquering your fear of death. And there's a, a kind of similar way that this gets taken up within the U.S. amongst civil rights activists. So this is a way of emancipating yourself from a fear that is one of the pillars of domination. Um, civil disobedience, obviously, is a collective practice that also works outwardly on other people and on institutions. And so there I think about practices of what I call disruption and disclosure, um, so disruption, very kind of colloquially, commonsensically, the way that civil disobedience disrupts everyday order, as well as institutional functioning in order to make people stop and consider what it is that they are a part of. And disclosure as the way that civil disobedience can sometimes open up a way for us to see forms of domination that maybe weren't visible before, whose inner workings weren't obvious to us. So the way, for example, that civil rights activists staged various dramatic confrontations with police power in order to reveal to people who had not experienced those effects themselves, who had not seen that side of racialized policing or the racial order, to show them this is what U.S. democracy really looks like. It's latent often, it's hidden from you, but protests can bring it out into into the public, into view, so that people can acknowledge it and start to think about uh, whether they want to be associated with, with that kind of order. So the idea is not that you persuade people by being respectful and engaging them in a reasoned argument, but instead you kind of force people to stop. You intervene and disrupt a routine. You know, Maybe you block traffic and it gets in the way of people going wherever they're going. It, it forces people to stop often against their own will. It's, it's not always a pleasant experience. It's not always a desired experience. It often isn't. And then secondarily and relatedly in that space of opening, in that space of interruption, they tried to stage something that would reveal new information or perhaps disavowed and ignored information about how institutions and, and democratic life are really functioning for its racialized others. And the thinking was really that by creating that space of both disruption and disclosure, even though there would be discomfort, even though they knew there would be backlash, people would be resistant to it, it's not comfortable and it's not pleasant, that only by doing that could you create the possibility for white citizens to to decide to divest themselves from a racial order that was in fact serving them often quite well. So again, backlash was kind of a built-in part of the logic. It was absolutely expected, but the thinking was that at least under some conditions, some of the time white citizens would be able to move beyond backlash to really consider again, whether they wanted to continue to, to support such an order or continue to tell themselves that this order was more democratic than it really was. Okay. And so how will decolonizing praxis save the world? <laughs> this is such a, a fraught question for me for, uh, I think, an obvious reason. Um, one thing that you know I'll note is that my book ends both on a hopeful note, I think, but also on an ambivalent note, because one thing about studying this movement in particular, but I think historical movements generally, is that you really have to reckon with the unfinished work and not even failures, the, the things that were violently prevented, all of the, the pathways of transformation that were very 
very definitively shut down by people with more resources and power. Let me play the fool for a brief moment <laughs> and say, um, so like the conventional story we tell about the civil rights movement is that it was a success, right? Nonviolent forms of protest were used uh, and like, we killed Jim Crow. Like, <laughs> like we took one great step towards saving the world. You know, you're talking about and but it's it's also very clear that we did not achieve that sort of equitable future that the activists you're talking about imagined. So can you talk a bit about what you're seeing as a failure or like Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a it's a perfect question. The triumphalism with which we recount the victories of the civil rights movement is, of course, part of the, the problem. Insofar as the narrative that I was talking about earlier, the impossible standard that activists get held to that is in part this fiction of the civil rights movement, that fiction is really powerful if you're also told that the movement was maximally successful. All of that adds up to this story in which you have horrible violence, a perfectly civil form of activism that somehow at the end, merely through the mechanisms of civility and a kind of white empathy, leads to a stunning victory. And so it's a really satisfying story to tell over and over again, in part because it, it can lead you to believe that in fact, to, to make these massive changes, very little discomfort, disruption to day-to-day -day life is actually necessary. If civil rights activists could do it to dismantle Jim Crow, then why, why can't you just be polite and have these big world historic changes? And so that, that kind of triumphalism is, is kind of baked into the narrative and part of what makes it so sticky, part of what gives it its staying power. It's not entirely untrue the civil rights movement was enormously successful in some ways. There are these large legislative changes that come seemingly quite quickly, especially if you tell a very short story about the movement that really starts with the Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board in the 1950s, goes through the Montgomery bus boycott, and really ends with the Selma voting rights campaign in 1965. It, you know, that's basically nine years to get these huge landmark pieces of legislation and tell yourself that these pieces of legislation amount to the end of racial discrimination, then that's that's spectacular. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but even for activists who were maybe most invested in legislative change as the output of their activism, um, I don't think there was ever any idea or belief that legislation, anti-discrimination legislation, was the end of the story or even what they were aspiring to do. It was a piece of the puzzle and an important one. Dismantling legalized discrimination, legalized segregation was enormously important. You know, we think about legalized discrimination and segregation as a kind of order that has to do with, you know, not being able to sit at a lunch counter on equal footing with, with white citizens. But really what it was about was about the way that that system of discrimination legitimized forms of state and civilian violence in order to police who could be where and who could do what. And so the dismantling of that legal order also meant to some extent the dismantling of all kinds of forms of legitimized racial violence. It's just that activists also saw the way that that the legislative and legal reality was part of an entire fabric of social, political, and economic life that was everywhere, that really determined your well-being and life chances and just day-to-day -day experience in every aspect of your life. 
And so for them, the end of formal Jim Crow was the beginning and not the end. But I think for large portions of the white public and certainly for the political power structure, the legislative change was the end. It's amazing kind of looking back at the at the historical documents, how clear that is even while it's happening, how definitively politicians are saying, okay, this now draws your activism to a close. You are now supposed to go home and behave yourself. We heard you. Mm-hmm. This was wrong. We've taken care of it. We are back in charge. We are the actors who are now in charge of safeguarding a democratic order and your time in this story has ended. And that happens so swiftly that the kind of triumphalism isn't actually even a kind of afterglow, something that we only look back on this moment with the distance of history because we no longer remember it clearly. It's something that's really manufactured in the moment in order to stop the disruption in the streets, in order to draw that period to a close so that so that things return to normal. There's a very, you know, in, in a way, I think it It's a familiar feeling of an activist success that is meaningful and important, but that is so quickly brought to a close so that further progress can't be made. Well, on that hopeful note. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the opposite of the question you asked, which is how can it change the world? I just told you how it often gets shut down. (laughs) That is often what happens when we ask. Erin, let me thank you for coming and speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. And thanks for listening, all of you out there. Thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.